Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than a pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, and Roger Federer is clearly mouthing the F word at the crowd, and they are letting him hear it. What a disgraceful display from the Swiss. Oh, what's this? He's throwing it back. This could change the sport. A terrible day for fishing. A great day for the fish. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio. And now your host, Shane Ryan. Episode number 15. This is Shane, Apocalypse Sports Radio. Delighted to have you with me. I hope you are... Equally delighted to have me with you in your home. Uh, I hope you're watching this with your entire extended family, grandparents, uh, kids, wife, everybody. Hope you're gathered around your old-timey radio uh, with blankets on your laps, uh, just just dying in anticipation for, t- <laughs> for today's content. Uh, and look, if you listen to it in a more modern way, on your headphones, in a car, I totally get that. I just prefer the... Uh, 30s depression era FDR fireside chat model for listening to podcasts. I think it brings the whole family together. Uh, okay, look, uh, this preamble, despite that nonsense, this preamble is going to be very short. Uh, I'm very, very happy to have Hannah Kaiser on the show today. Uh, Hannah is an extremely talented baseball writer for Yahoo Sports. She also covers a little bit of politics for them, and she has had a fascinating career. Um, she's what we call in the biz a 10 tool journalist. And I, you know, one of the one of the rules is you don't describe the 10 tools. <laughs> you never can, so I'm not going to get into that. But I will say that Hannah uh, has been a food editor for Vice Magazine. She uh, she wrote about culture and politics and sports for Deadspin. Uh, she worked for the commissioner's office in MLB. She was an author's assistant. So she has a lot of great experience, a very smart person, and I think you're really going to enjoy our chat about her career and about the uh, MLB labor dispute that she's covering now. Uh, I always like to uh, give a quick plug uh, to ApocalypseSports.net. I write five posts per week. I do these two podcasts. Uh, a lot of it's free, but you can get it all for $3 a month. Subscribe at Patreon.com slash ApocalypseSports. I think you'll like it. I don't know you. I don't know you personally, but I think it'll be a positive addition to your life. All right. Without further ado, let us get to the main event and hear from Hannah Kaiser. Segment break. Hannah, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm okay. I mean, I'm as good as, you know, I'm the world is bad, but I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're in New York right now. So you're kind of in at least what used to be the epicenter of it. I think the epicenter is now moving to places like me in North Carolina, but have you managed to stay relatively healthy, relatively sane through this? Yeah. So I've, I've been healthy. I'm very lucky to have outdoor space. So I'm, uh, I'm on the the sort of the upper end of how sane a person can be when they're stuck in a Brooklyn apartment for three months on end. Um, it was it was it was weird. It does um, it does seem like it's getting better. So so you know first was coronavirus and then there've been um, all these Black Lives Matter protests. And uh, one of the stories I did at the Black Lives Matter protests was talking to healthcare workers who were also protesting. Um, and that was interesting for a lot of reasons, but also because I got a chance to ask a bunch of people who are on the front lines of, 
um, COVID-19, is it getting better? And they yeah. say it is. So, good, <laughs> so I, feel good. A little bit, I feel a little bit reassured that, that, um, that the nurses, at least the nurses and doctors, at least those who showed up to the protests, uh, say that uh, the, the hospitals are a little bit less overwhelmed than they were at one point, and they are making progress on, on sort of treating people effectively. Yeah, it's nice to hear good news. And by the way, the cars uh, that beeped right as you started talking was a very authentic New York audio. So I'm, I'm glad that happened. Was, it, that is that is only the beginning. Uh, that is. <laughs> we'll, hear, sure we'll hear sirens, will be, right? Uh, yes, lots of sirens. You will absolutely hear sirens. <laughs> Well, you seem to have a pretty cool thing going at Yahoo. And I, last night I was looking through your um, the stuff you've written recently. And at a time when almost everything I read tends to be uh, awful the and, and sort of like disturbing, your story uh, where you interviewed historians about, um, I think basically the premise was like, if this is the end of civilization, will we know it? Somehow managed to be more disturbing in some subtle <laughs> in some subtle way that I can't quite describe than than all the other disturbing things I wrote. But it was a really cool story, and I just wanted to start asking you about that because I know you have a history background. Um, what was it like talking to these people who are like, yeah, we might not know we're in the end times right now? So I knew I wanted to look into that question in some way. I had like, I think my editors sort of didn't think I was serious. And, and that's exactly how it started was, uh, I, my editors were like, you know, sports, like are, there's nothing really to cover right now. This was before all the labor stuff started happening. And they were like, if you want to write about, um, the pandemic, you can. And I started sort of poking around a little bit. I did some like smaller stories and I kept saying, I was like, so really the thing I want to know is if this is the end of civilization as we know it, <laughs> would we, would we even know in time? Um, and, uh, Patrick Wyman, who I interviewed for that story, uh, has a podcast or I guess he has, he has a lot of podcasts, but he did one years ago that was called the fall of Rome. That was great. And it was, um, specifically, it didn't just sort of take like a, a retroactive view. He attempted to sort of like talk through what it would have been like to live through the fall of Rome. And so I knew that I wanted to talk to him. And then um, I have this ancient history degree. And in fact, uh, the like the first sort of subject I studied in college uh, as it pertains to like the ancient sort of ancient Near East was um, the, the collapse of the Bronze Age and the mysterious collapse of the Bronze Age. And I did this big paper in college on on the collapse of the Bronze Age. And so, um, because I knew I because I knew that there was two specific ways to get into it, um, I figured that that would work out as a story. But it was really depressing. My my editors <laughs> my editors really my editors really thought I wasn't serious. And that was sort of that was sort of the interesting thing was that like I was like I want to look at whether or not we know this is like whether or not we can tell this is the collapse of the civilization. Um, yeah. and my editors were like, sure, but you know, I'm not sure like why or how you would do that. Um, and right. It, this is the only time that my history degree has ever helped <laughs> in my journalism career, because it was, it was helpful to know that like, um, that that's not actually like a totally absurd thing to ask that like you can, you can, there are people who study these things, there are people who study collapse of civilization. Yeah. Well, your editor's skepticism almost proves your point, right? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> you guys don't know what's going on. I, I love one quote from Wyman. He said, like, maybe they didn't know, quote, oh, my God, the Bronze Age is ending. Get ready for the Iron Age. <laughs> that made right. me laugh. That was great. But, yeah, no, it, it was it was a cool story. And it's like it does. It registers. It's like, yeah, 
I mean, everybody lives through interesting times, right? There's probably always some kind of tragedy or impending thing, but now it's sort of like, maybe we should, maybe it would be good if we did think it was the end times, at least to impart a sort of a, a greater sense urgency? of urgency. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's right. That's what I was, right. That's sort of what I was hoping to do was this idea of, of um, I mean, this is not like special to me, but like, so sort of, I think people who study history and in fact, all the historians I talked to for the story, all the historians I talked to for the story made this point that um if you study history you don't have quite the same hubris that perhaps that like how could this ever be the like they're, right, they're very right. aware that like that things do end um and so i think right the idea that that was really how i was feeling at the beginning of the, the lockdown was this idea of like everyone was sort of like what will we do on our first day back to normal and i was like i don't know man this is <laughs> like if it, like why would it not be the pandemic that was <laughs> yeah. the end yeah um, uh, so, yeah, so yeah looking at what you like being able to write stories like that and you've written about like the mental health issues in the pandemic but also you're a baseball writer at yahoo and you know, somewhere like Deadspin, where you worked before, it would be kind of normal to be able to write those two kinds of stories. But I don't see it as being that normal at a place like Yahoo or mainstream outlets. So talk a little bit about that beat, because it seems pretty great that you can go in both directions there working for Yahoo. Yeah, they've been um, they've been really wonderful about that. Um, so when I first interviewed for the job, even when I interviewed for the job, one of the things that I made very clear was that so Yahoo has great Olympic coverage. Um, in fact, I went to the Olympics once while I was at Deadspin and hung out with Jeff Passan there a bunch because um, yes. I knew him from from the sort of media. Um, and so I knew they had great Olympics coverage. And so even when I interviewed for this job and they were sort of like, we want you to come, they reached out to me when I left Deadspin and they asked me to come interview for the, the baseball writer job. Um, and I was sort of like, yeah, but I, I don't, you know, I want to be able to do other things. And the, the thing that I told them was like, I won't take, I I'll take this job if you tell me I can go to the Olympics. Cause I was like, I'm, I'll burn out if I just do baseball right. all the time. And so originally that was um, a big part of this. And in fact, I have flights booked to Tokyo uh, uh, so so next so month. Um, but that was, so that was, that was, that was like laid the groundwork a little bit where I had sort of already talked to them about this idea of like, I want to make sure that I'm able to write about other things, whether that's other sports or anything else. Um, and then Johnny Ludden, who is our editor in chief of the sports section, sports vertical at Yahoo, um, is particularly wonderful about this, and and actually really encouraged everyone who covers sports to expand beyond that specific to the pandemic. We did a big writers meeting. Um, I think they were especially receptive because I can't remember if I did this before or after we even had a meeting about it. Um, like the first week I was back in New York, I did a story on. Um, essential workers and what it was like to still be going to work when everyone else was at home. Uh, and this is going to sound almost needlessly self-aggrandizing, um, but that story did very, very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. Uh, and it was, I think, you know, it was like far and away our biggest traffic story at the time. Um, All right. That's and, plenty, Hannah. Come on. Now you're just. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, so, well, so right. So I think, yeah, so I yeah. think a big, a big part of it was like all these sports stopped and I didn't really know what to do. And so I did this story on, on essential workers um, and it did really well. And they were like, and, and something that Johnny has really emphasized to all of us in sports is that like the people who, I mean, Yahoo has great sports reporters. We have much better reporters than me and other sports. Even we have people who break huge news and people who uh, 
have been in the, Yahoo is a really deep sports roster of people who have been at Yahoo a long time and, and in the industry a long time and have like a really impressive span of um, experience. We have people all over the country for one thing. We have people who are, you know, my coworker, Tim Brown is 30 years older than I am and, <laughs> and like ha- lives in Los Angeles and has worked sort of all these jobs. And so I think I, when, so Johnny had a meeting with all those sports writers who were interested in it and sort of said like, there's, you know, we're, at, we're, we're a, like a very um, disparate team and everyone is kind of used to working on their own. And so yeah. there was no reason to not, like everyone is, is already very flexible and very versatile and very nimble. Um, and so they kind of just said to, to do that. And then specifically, so specifically, I, I guess I, I took them up on that offer particularly vigorously. Um, and so they uh, asked a couple of us um, Shalice, who's another writer, did some work on parenting. So they asked me specifically to focus on mental health because yeah. it's what I was working up to. That's great. Um, and, yeah, and you can tell, I mean, even, like your civilization story, I mean, it has like more than a thousand comments. So obviously this stuff is doing really well and people are responding. And I was just looking at some of the other stuff. Like you wrote Mitch McConnell. This is a headline. Mitch McConnell is using baseball for dangerous political theater during coronavirus crisis. And my big thought reading that was like, she would never be able to do that at ESPN. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I surprised me, to be honest, to be frank, like Yahoo seems like to me just as big as not, maybe not just as big, but up there in terms of mainstream stuff. So it surprised me that you would sort of be off the, off the chain to be able to do that stuff. Um, I think they, uh, they're very, they're, no one ever gives me pushback on the, no one, they're very good. They, no one ever gives me any pushback on the particular position I want to take. I think they are sometimes surprised that I would take such a strong position. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, I think, right. I think that's sort of interesting coming from Deadspin's Yahoo, because I think that they, um, that sometimes people here are caught off guard that it doesn't like, why would you, I, I feel very much sort of like, if you're going to take a position, take it as strongly as you can and, and right, don't yeah. mince words and don't yeah. like, well, there's no, there's no point in trying to sort of obfuscate how you actually feel uh, but when it comes to politics, that is not the prevailing mindset. That's somewhere like <laughs> at, at the bigger places. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, so that's the thing. So I think that sometimes, like, sometimes the people at Yahoo are a little bit like, uh, you know, have you read these comments? I'm like, no, I would never. Why would I read the comments? I'm, I'm sure they're terrible, but I don't yeah. care. <laughs> like, that was going to be my next question because <laughs> if you wrote something like that at Deadspin, you'd have a mostly uh, favorable audience. And then Yahoo, I think it's just like, I'm sure there's a ton of great readers and also the vermin of the internet. <laughs> well, I'm not well, sure well, there are a ton of great readers. I don't have an issue insulting our readers. Uh, <laughs> okay, I, I, <laughs> um, no. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's something I miss about Deadspin is it is, um, it is frustrating, I guess a little bit sometimes to feel like uh, positions that feel morally and ethically correct like i so i i pretty much never read the comments on my own stories yeah. um i read the comments on um this is, this is this would be a stronger point to make if i remember the specifics um we ran a first person piece from a white woman who's married to a black man who has a black son and who i believe oh god i'm not even remember the sport either just signed nfl or the nba okay. or the nba um and this white woman wrote an article 
for Yahoo sort of about um, about the protests that are happening and about this idea of um, uh, of encountering people who are surprised that her son was sort of so smart or whatever. Like she, it was a really nuanced piece. It wasn't just sort of like, Hey, don't be racist. Um, it was like really nuanced about this idea of like, uh, being white and being privy to the way that people feel about black people because they maybe don't know that this person is her son or whatever it is. Um, and the comments, and I was like, I was like, all right, well, what a, what a, you know, sort of heartfelt, uh, impeachable piece. <laughs> it's like, I don't yeah. know. It's just someone's experience. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I thought to read the comments and they were horrible. And I was uh, like, are you, are you yeah. kidding? Like, yeah. but, I was like, how are the comments on this piece? And it actually made, that made me a little bit sad in the sense of like, um, you know, Gawker media, GMG, whatever you want to call it. Like the comment sections were not always great. I mean, they were, they went and even just in my time there and, and certainly predating my time there went through various iterations of how they were moderated and that sort of stuff. But if you did write something like that, I, I wrote personal essays while I was there and I found the comments to be like genuinely heartwarming and like, yeah, yeah. Um, it made me sort of sad for this woman who, who I was like, I wish like, I was sort of sad in this way that I was like, Oh no, like there's nothing like, you didn't say, she, I was like, you didn't even say anything controversial. Like this person does not deserve, I hope she didn't read the comments. I'm also sure that she's like a perfectly strong, self-actualized woman who doesn't need me. But like, it made me sad reading these comments because I was sort of like, trust me, this is like a very upsetting pocket of the internet, Yahoo comments. If, you're, if, you, li- <laughs> if you read Yahoo and you're listening to me, like, I'm sorry, but like, fuck you if you comment on our site and it's like racist bullshit crap. Like it's, it's really yeah. terrible because I was like, I said, like, this is not, not like the, this woman who wrote this piece, like, is she like and it, it it's she deserves something better even than neutral you know what i mean like oh yeah no she deserves like, to be praised and she deserves to have like the, the like you said the nuance of what she wrote acknowledged in some positive way <laughs> right. not even right. not even nothing <laughs> but she's not like when you look at the comments it's not positive it's not nothing which would be bad enough it's actually it, it, actively negative for some of the people right and i was really upset about that because i felt like i did come up at a place in deadspin where you got positive comments. You got people saying like, yeah. if you, if particularly if you wrote something personal or heartfelt or vulnerable or whatever it is, I mean, people, it was a real, uh, people who read the site loved the site. And I, I'm always like, do people who read my articles now like baseball or sports or Yahoo? <laughs> like, <we don't, laughs> Why are you reading this? Who are these people? Yeah. No, I remember actually, I, and I looked this up again cause I wanted to read it again before I spoke with you, but um, an example of that, some of the times I didn't consent, which is a piece you wrote for Deadspin, which, um, yeah, probably the most personal piece yeah, I, yeah, I wrote about and we don't... around the, no, no, that's, you go. <laughs> no, no, I was just going to say, yeah, but it was a good example of something that was, like you said, really personal, but you could almost the, the way it's presented in Deadspin and sort of the, the people that you know, are going to read it are going to have similar experiences and they're all, even though you're making yourself incredibly vulnerable writing that piece, there has to be a sort of comfort in knowing that where it's like, Imagine I'm just trying to imagine you doing that in Yahoo, and it's like obviously you wouldn't read the comments, but it wouldn't be that same sense of um, if there is security to be found on the internet, you wouldn't find it at Yahoo writing something like that. Right, and so that's that's definitely the most sort of like vulnerable piece I ever did. But even the very first piece I published in my job at Yahoo or Dead, sorry, my job at Deadspin was it was uh, I started that job the same month I got married, like a couple of weeks before I got married, and wow. I wrote about the ambivalence I had around sort of what to do with my last name. Um, 
And for whatever reason, that piece really, really resonated. It's the first piece I did at Deadspin and got like hundreds of really positive comments and, and not just positive, but right, like sort of intelligent comments, like people wrote out their, their same thinking, if they had felt similarly and what they had decided. And I was like, great, thank you. Like it was a good, I mean, this is, uh, not that it's worth comparing. I like my job at Yahoo better. I'm, I'm very, this is not like, and almost never think about the comments, but it, it is one particular part of the job that's like, um, I'm, I'm sure if somehow these jobs were reversed and I worked at Yahoo first and then at Deadspin, it would have been hard to be younger and get these mean comments. It would probably have turned me off a little bit from writing on the, like, it was, it was really nice. Like when I did that piece at Deadspin on changing, not changing my last name, and it was sort of the first piece I had done for a really big audience because I'd never been anywhere as big as Deadspin. And I was like, oh, people, like, people appreciate when you are honest and, and, you know, revelatory or whatever. Um, and uh, being able to, you, to sort of bring this full circle, you mentioned like the Mitch McConnell piece, like uh, it is helpful to have spent a couple of years writing a place at a place where people in the comments largely agree with how I feel about Mitch McConnell. Yeah. 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 And of course. It, it builds up a little bit of a thick skin. So you can then feel like, all right, whatever. I don't care about the comments at Yahoo. Yeah, well, I had a similar experience. I mean, when I started writing at Grantland, I was—I think I was older than you were when you started at Deadspin. I was probably like 27 or so. And it was the same thing where the majority of the comments are going to be supportive. The people that are coming there are coming there for a specific reason. It's not like people are just finding it like it would be at ESPN or something. But I do remember like early on the negative comments, even if they were mildly negative, were devastating in a way that now would be ridiculous because you, unless you're there's some people who never develop thick skin and we all, we all know who they are. But yeah. most normal people, I think like after a year you go, whatever, like and the unfortunate side effect is it also sort of ruins the nice comments or, or diminishes yeah. like their magnitude as well. But uh, but yeah, so I guess that is good for you, right? Like it would have been more of a disaster to be at Yahoo early and to have all these negative comments. Now you've sort of been um, like loosened up or like punched up a little by Deadspin, but yeah. not in a bad way. So now you're ready for the, the heavy stuff or ready it's not funny, to look my, at it. The only, the only issue I ever have with comments is my parents read the comments and I have spent years of my life since dating back to <laughs> probably when I started at Deadspin which was five years ago, uh, telling my parents don't tell me what they say like my dad will call me and be like you see the comments in your latest article I was like why no just don't like i was like dad if you have to look at them for yourself for whatever reason i like you need to do me the kindness of never telling me that you've looked at them <laughs> like, it is. Par- parents, your own time. parents get so fired up I, i'm imagining like 10 minute voicemails from your dad just reading the list of comments going down uh jeff from iowa says yeah it's yeah, uh, exactly yeah so let me let me ask you this. Um, you we talked about you were uh, at least had a focus. I don't know if it was your major, but a, a focus in ancient history when you went to UPenn. It was my major. It was your that major. Was my, I, I majored in ancient history. I took hieroglyphics as my language. So there is at least a chance at one point that you could have been either like a bookish academic or Indiana Jones or something different than what you became. Uh, how did you get from there to Deadspin? Uh, to Deadspin. Well. Or, or yeah, I guess like I'm sure Deadspin wasn't the first stop, but what was the path was like not. into being a sports writer? Um, so I was an ancient history major in college, like you said. Um, I knew I always wanted 
or not always actually, because I started college as an astrophysics major. So at one point I thought oh. I was going to work in a, I, I thought I was going to work in a laboratory and be a scientist. And I was like, my dream was to work at NASA. Uh, huh. it, it pretty much went the dream was to work at NASA. And then I realized that I'm not that smart. Um, and I hate <laughs> being in a lab. Uh, and so then the dream became to work for national geographic. That was sort of like, that was like the, the, the bridge publication away from academia was I, I was interested in astrophysics and then I got interested in ancient history and both of those things were fascinating to me, but seemed sort of very, very dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I became obsessed with national geographic and I like, I can't remember what, what the circumstance, I like went and did an interview there in, in Washington DC. I was like, I, that was like, I was like, I got to work at national geographic. It'll be a way to sort of, um, take this ancient history degree and apply it to like being a, a contemporary writer in a sort of pop culture type, more like media way. Um, and Here's I, a and, super naive question to interrupt you. Sorry, but does National Geographic yeah. have good writing? I, I actually don't know. I mean, are, do they have like feature stories and stuff? I don't know their deal. I think they do, but it was like a weird, <laughs> it was like a very, it was sort of like a weird, like clinging to the fact that I had this history degree and I had to like yeah, find some way yeah. to put it to use. Um, and so I like, I felt like I was, I always thought that was the dream. And then, but I like loved baseball and I have been a baseball fan my whole life. Um, and my senior year of college, I did a, took like a, one of those like fantastic writing workshop classes that you can only ever do if your parents are overpaying for a liberal arts degree <laughs> where you spend like the entire semester writing one feature. Um, right. And I wrote it about the Phillies and the fanatic. I spent a lot of time, the Phillies were like weirdly fine with this. I like spent a lot of time there in the off season and like meeting people around the front office. Um, and simultaneously I like needed a job in college, to like make a little bit of money. And I worked as an assistant I, throughout college. I worked as an assistant to various authors, which is like a weirdly great job. This is like a completely random plug, but uh, look for like local authors and work as their assistant. This was like, People are always like, I didn't work at the school newspaper or anything when I was in college. I didn't, uh, so, I mean, maybe it'd be better to like, you know, work for your alt weekly, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, but yeah, well, I, I, worked, I, I had worked, a friend who, this is, it's funny you mentioned, I had a friend who wrote a script about an assistant to an author and like he's, he's in LA and he does improv and stuff like that. And he wrote this movie script and he got feedback from authors. And the most feedback he got was like, authors don't have assistants. We don't have enough money to have assistants. So, I, so there's, it's a real thing. Like they're, they're actually, it's a real thing. Okay. I, I did this twice. So my, the first author I was an assistant to was Stephen Fried. So I think the way, I think it actually probably how it worked was, um, I swear that I don't remember this. This is how old I've gotten. <laughs> I worked as an assistant to this author, Stephen Freed, who I think taught at Penn. And I think it was like an internship credit. So that one I didn't get paid for. And it was like, he had always had like two or three Penn students. And actually I met like one of my best friends that way. She was the other assistant. Um, and that was through Penn. And then because I had done that, I got a job that actually paid as an actual author's assistant uh, to Larry Platt, who was the editor in chief of the Philadelphia daily news. And he had been the sports editor of the daily news before he was the editor in chief. And he wrote sports biographies. So the first, okay. three, he, he hired me to work on Jamie Moyer's biography, which is a very weird job. Um, oh, that's cool. And yeah. I, I stayed on for Stuart Scott's biography. Um, I worked on um, a, feature about the guy who founded and one and is now a high school basketball coach. And then they made that into a documentary. Um, 
but so I, that was my, that was my like side job when I was in college and somehow that combined with when I, my, the time I'd spent at the Phillies and, and, and Larry, because he was the editor of the daily news, let, gave me some, um, daily news sports clips. I did like a story on the fanatic that ended up being a cover story. And I, I, so it's so sorry. So this it's like is a perfect, very, no, very it's like a perfect job to have at that time. I mean, yeah, almost like a perfect like, bridge. I, yeah. Right. It was like, I had just sort of like, I had, I basically was like, Oh, I remember like interviewing with him. I was actually like abroad when I interviewed with him and I was sort of like, Oh, you know, I, like I'm like love baseball, but I'm an ancient history major. So I'm great at research and like, you know, but like would love to work on baseball books. That sounds like so much fun. And I knew the Phillies and I was from, yeah. I'm from Philly. So I knew the Phillies and he was working on this Jamie Moyer book. And I was like, I love Jamie Moyer. I was a big fan. Um, and so I, he, he like, so he hired me and I worked with him. I ended up working with Larry for like, six years like into my adulthood and I got other jobs and everything um but it was which is why I say it's like a great a weirdly great job to get if you're like a college student because um then I like it was interesting because right it's like I had I never so I never made I mean I never was sort of like I need to be a sports journalist right, I was sort right. of like I was sort of like well this is like a great research job and then I really loved writing about baseball and then because I had had some access i started writing about it more and then i got some clips and so then the very first job that i ever had at a college was at the commissioner's office which was a weird jump to make um and yeah i saw you worked for mlb and before i read your yahoo biography last week i had no idea that you ever that you ever had that job i had two different jobs at mlb i worked at the commissioner's office it was a seasonal job and then i worked for uh bam i worked the night shift doing sny and yes like homepage updates no where I met my husband. Wow. Yeah. Uh, okay. It was like, that's like, that was like the worst job. Like <laughs> I took, like I took that job because it was like, I guess at that point I must've been committed to doing baseball because what a terrible job. Uh, it was 7 PM to 2 AM. And it was just updating the like, like here's it. I wonder what it looks like now. Like if you go to yes, or SNY. While you're doing this, season. let me just say that while you're talking about Larry Platt, I Googled him and it's also, yeah. you probably knew this already, but also the name of the guy who did the pants on the ground song for American oh, Idol, which is the first Larry Platt you get when you, when you Google him. So there's uh, uh <laughs> next time you talk to him, you can, uh, I'll tell him that. Yeah. Let him know. The, S the SNY website looks completely different now. So it does not, it won't make any sense. But basically I had this like horrible job where all I did was, um, update the like little one sentence thing on the homepage that oh would God. be happening if there was like a Mets game. So like if you would go to like SNY.com, it would be like, you know, like not now or not then because it was different, but I can only think of current Mets pitchers. It'd be like, you know, Syndergaard takes the mound against Braves. Right. And then like, and then if like, you know, Syndergaard got like lit up in the first inning and got pulled, you had to change that so that it said like, you know, like, Mets try for comeback against the Braves. Like, it always, like, always positive though. Like it can never be like Syndergaard gets yeah. shelled. Yeah. No, no, exactly. So it was, and that was not, that was the whole job. Yeah. That <laughs> sounds tedious as hell. I mean, there are harder jobs like physically and mentally, I suppose, but it, it does sound awful. It was awful. And I misspelled Jared Sulfalamakia's name once and I got a ton of trouble. Uh, really? Wow. And, but, but so, the upshot is somebody let me do, um, there was like a complete bullshit 
part of the website that no one ever read, I'm sure. But it was basically like on Sunday nights, it recapped the week in New York sports. Um, so you could like click on something and it basically just said like, you know, whatever. The Mets went three and two this week. The Yankees went four and oh, the right. Islanders won. And, and they... Um, they let you write like a little bit of copy to go with it. And I turned it into like a full on column. I wrote like a thousand <laughs> words every week. Like it was like, yeah. I, I remember this was the year that the, the, this was the year of the Boston marathon bombing. And I wrote all about that. Nice, <laughs> like, yeah. I think, I think just no one was checking this. So it was, it was supposed <laughs> to just sort of be their schedule. And I like turned it into this column and I started using that as clips. Um, and then that's really smart. It's, yeah, it sounds like there was like you kind of understood early that you have to be ambitious and you have to sort of make your own destiny or like yes. you, you have to turn your SNY like little like, hey, the Rangers won today into into a personal column uh, in order to sort of attract any attention or, or kind of get a tiny little I, foothold. I don't even know that anyway. It's not I wish I could. I wish that my story was like and somebody found these and they loved them so much. They offered me a job. It wasn't that I like right. got some job at a food media startup that went kaput and i lost my job i got another job at mental floss which was actually like a, a fun a really fun job which is like a trivia website that yeah, was super yeah fun. i remember mental floss i haven't been there in like a decade it seems like but i do remember it neither am i um but while <laughs> i was there i did a bunch of baseball adjacent stories there actually i like interviewed john thorne a bunch and will be official historian i did doing a bunch of stories with john thorne rather than mental floss because um it was like it was almost like too easy like i'd be like give me the weirdest thing from baseball's history <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. um and then like totally great mental floss story uh and sorry this is way too long-winded let me see you're good no no no. this is what it's for this is i'm sure people are interested in hearing this oh uh, sorry uh basically so this is this is the part of the story that like um like honestly the real jump happened my now husband was in the other room uh proposed to me we were stupid young uh, for whatever reason. I said, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he worked nights still, he was still at the MLB jobs so or he was still working nights. Okay. Um, and I quit my job at mental floss because I was tired of not seeing my then fiance, um, and started freelancing and I hated freelancing and I was terrible at it. And I have an insane amount of respect for anyone who's able to make that hustle work for them because I absolutely could not do it. And it was like, deeply agonizing on my soul. And to this day, my therapist still references it. Uh, <laughs> I like the idea that your therapist is bringing up the trauma. You're like, I'm over it. No, let's talk, well, let's talk about the horrible freelancing period. She'll be like, remember when you were freelance, you were so unhappy. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, like a perspective thing, right? Um, but basically, that Deadspin found me some, from some freelance articles. So I like quit my mental health job and I was freelancing. Um, and somebody from Deadspin reached out to me and they asked me to apply for deadspin was launching a lifestyle vertical do you remember adequate man yes of course yeah so they were launching a lifestyle vertical and they were looking for people who had covered sports but not just sports um who could sort like people they were looking for people who knew sports but who didn't want to write about sports because they wanted people to write for their lifestyle vertical um and so i got that job and then that kind of like weirdly went away and then we just wrote about sports again yeah um yeah um, now it's interesting because you said earlier that you like your Yahoo job better. Um, Deadspin takes on, I think for people who have never worked there, um, but are kind of involved in the industry or just sports fans who are young, it takes on this sort of huge, huge sort of presence in our heads because it's such a, it, 
it sucks that it's not around anymore. It's a place. It's really the only website I think I would go to other than ESPN, where I would actually just type in the URL of the rather than just finding stories. Um, and it, it's like I said, so sad that it's gone. But we have no idea what it was actually like to work there. So I'm curious about that. I mean, what was it like to go into the Deadspin offices? Was it a fun job? Was it a good job? What was that experience like? Uh, it was fun. It was. It was. It was fun. It was not it ended up being not the right job for me. And I like, I mean, it's funny cause it's like, I, I started, I started at the sort of non-traditional outlet and then I went to a much more traditional outlet. Um, and so I had, I had like a, it's like a sign curve of your career. Like you started at the, yeah. <laughs> at the X axis, then you went wild. Yeah. Then it was like vice, which is still for, and then back to, yeah. to Yahoo. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I liked, I think what was always missing and it was actually much harder for me to leave vice because I hadn't been there that long and I really, really loved people there. Um, and so it was like tough to leave, but the reason I left vice, which is sort of relates to sort of why I was, I'm happier Yahoo than I was at Benspin is that like, um, I didn't want to just be a blogger actually in the end, like (laughs) it was a really great job and it was like a lot of fun and I got some like really, really fun clips, but it's, I think, I think I always, I mean, that's why I, like, I went to the Olympics when I was at Deadspin and I think they, that, I referenced that already, but like that experience, I was sort of like, I want to do this all the time. Like, I want to go to the sports. I want to like, yeah. Well, it's, it's more active, and... isn't it? I mean, it's a difference. You're seeing things, talking to people. I, I did a golf digest story during the pandemic, like a month ago after talking to nobody, you know, related to, to my actual job to journalism. And it was this 15 minute interview with some guy who was doing well on the Arizona, some minor desert tour. Uh, and the idea was like, Oh, he's the best golfer of the pandemic. Cause they didn't shut down this tour, but just that act of talking to somebody and writing the story was uplifting. So I kind of think yeah. I see where you're coming from. Like blogging can be a very isolating private experience. Yeah. Like it was, it was definitely like a lot of fun. And it was like, I think I like sort of quite literally like grew out of it. Like I did it for a little while and then I was like, okay, I'm ready to be there. That's, that's I, wanna, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanna go and, and kind of actually cover the things and learn more than I can know reading. Um and also I mean it's sort of right, it's it's interesting. I don't know, this is not a not an intentional dig on Deadspin or anyone there, but like I've only done this job for a year and I feel like I know all these beat writers now and I spend a lot of time with beat writers and I, and I have a level of respect for them and a level of like, um, I think they're better at this than I am. Like I, I, and I just sort of, I'm glad, I'm glad that I got beyond Deadspin because I, I remember being there and feeling like the idea of sort of waiting for something ridiculous to bubble to the surface and then poking holes in it is it important so it's it's like it's an important service and like it obviously was like a popular service and it's also just like a really smart business model honestly like seems much more sustainable than actual beat writing and it's a shame that it didn't survive because it's like that's a cheap way to get people to read like trust me but deadspin was hugely popular everything i wrote there did monster traffic compared to what i'm sure a game story does and also was much cheaper so from like a management standpoint insane that people yeah people should have people should invest in that model yeah. i wish they wouldn't i wish they would pay us to be on the road to covering cover baseball games but uh, but 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 that is to say that like now that i do this i remember being at deadspin and feeling like 
oh, fuck those beat writers who like yeah. are like slavish to the team or whatever. And now I have this job and I, I see beat writers all the time and I go to cities and I think like, oh my God, you know so much and you've been here so much time and it's, it's so hard and there's like such a, I mean, the idea of it being a grind is, sounds like a cliche, but it's true. It's a real grind and like, mm-hmm. yeah. I now have friends who, you know, have friends who can talk about like what the 2012 Orioles were like and to a degree that like, I'm sorry, but like no one who ever wrote on a blog will know. And it's, and it's like someone should have that knowledge and it's really valuable. And I'm, I have a lot of, I like this world where people, I like this world. Yeah. I've had the same experience. Yeah. And and you do, you you start to realize that they're not just human beings, but typically pretty smart and interesting human beings and they're nice. And yeah, you kind of get off that mindset of like, Oh, it's cool to like sit back and lob grenades at them from, (laughs) from the privacy. Yeah. And you can see, like you said, it's a valuable service in a lot of respects and and that kind of accountability is important, but I get what you're saying. All right. So let us talk about baseball, shall we? Um, Yes. This is an anti-owner podcast, just so you know, (laughs) just so you're prepared for what's coming. Um, I know you, it sounds like you were kind of a mole at the MLB commissioner's office way back when, and and now you've turned, uh, but no, you know, we talked a lot about this, but I think one thing I keep going back to, it seemed like a footnote at the beginning, and now it seems to increase in importance all the time, uh, is this March 26th agreement that they signed. Mm. Yeah. Maybe if we can, can you explain that to me? What what are the important parts of that agreement and how it's coming into play now uh, on this ongoing debate of who has the leverage, who can do what? And it all goes back, it seems, to March 26th. Yeah, so this is like totally my wheelhouse and, and the, the shit that I find the most fascinating. I really love uh, labor stuff. I was on the bargaining committee advice, which was when we bargained our labor contract for the union there. And so um, I knew, like even starting at Yahoo, I knew I wanted to cover labor. So yeah. lucky me, now I get to cover it all the time. I'm ready for some, <laughs> I'm ready to stop covering labor and start covering some baseball. Yeah. But um, the, so, okay. In March 26th, this was like right after they shut down the season. And back when we had like virtually no idea what was going to happen with anything, um, they seemingly without any trouble, in fact, it, looking back, it was suspiciously a smooth process to get this contract signed. Um, and, it was basically sort of like, you know, they had to put something on paper. Uh, but at the time, it seemed the biggest deal was that they were going to give players a year of service time, even if there was no season, which was like a big sticking point. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a couple key things. So basically, that that contract says that players will be paid prorated salaries for however many games end up being played. Now says a bunch of other things uh there is a very key part of this contract which went wildly overlooked at the time uh which is that technically this season cannot start until a series of conditions are met that were never going to be met this year like um like the the section 1a i'm actually not totally sure if it is that but basically the very beginning of the the contract does like we're not playing baseball again until there are no bans on mass gatherings, no bans on travel. Like, okay. There's no coronavirus, basically. It doesn't say that, but like, and, um, that's obviously not reasonable. Right. Uh, and it basically says like that, that's the condition under which the season can start or Rob Manfred himself, the commissioner can start a season. 
So, <laughs> so it basically, it, does it give him an out? Is that the ultimate thing? Does it give him the ability yes. to just nix the season entirely? Exactly. It basically, basically, the contract says like Manfred has to overrule these conditions, which are impossible to, to meet. Right. In gotcha. order to sort of start a season this year, uh, and so uh, the issue now is, and it it does. You know, it does talk about economic feasibility and the players and the union. And so the players in the league will meet to discuss all these other things. It also sort of says a bunch of things that um, matter very much um, in terms of the actual sort of like legal proceedings. It says things like the commissioner's office has to give the players association a copy of the schedule and they can give them feedback within a span of 72 days or or three business days or 72 hours, something like that. Mm -hmm. So there is... <clears throat> there is like um, a lot of a lot of procedural stuff laid out about how discussing a new contract will go. But basically, since then, um, the union has said we're not like we're not agreeing essentially to even negotiate a season. Yeah. That we we are saying that that contract is the contract. And under that contract, you'd have to pay us prorated salaries. So basically the league cannot force them. The league cannot force them to renegotiate the pay part because there has, there is already an existing contract that covers this time period. It covers this 2020 season. And how do they get paid in 2020? They get paid prorated. Um, And, and, and so what we've seen sort of since then is that um, the league keeps proposing the salary structures. The same thing with different. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They keep proposing salary structures, but what they're essentially proposing is a new contract. They're saying, like, scrap that contract. There's yeah. a new contract. And 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 the Players Association, um, rightfully, is sort of saying that, like, well, we can just not engage with any of that because, like, we already have this contract. Um now what we the like the to me what was like very very interesting was that was the sort of the the 50 game bluff by the owners because basically the owners were like fine 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 we like cannot convince them to we cannot convince them to 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 discuss a new contract so what can we do under the terms of this existing march 26th contract and what they realized is well you know if we only want to pay them a hundred dollars and they make five dollars a day like we could pay them for only 20 days right like, yes 20 yeah, yeah, days. yeah you right. got so, it that's good math yeah exactly <laughs> um so they so the the owners realized that uh, rob manfred or his lawyers or dan haleb whoever it is morgan sword uh realized that like that they that if they can't get the players to sign a new contract that they can impose a length of season as long as they still pay them prorated salaries, because then they're abiding by the existing contract, the March 26th contract. Um, I think the players association was really smart. Honestly, like they, we can, they've made uh, disastrous moves in the past. They're mm-hmm. not always the best, most savvy in how they handle uh, messaging, but I actually think that sort of calling the league on this bluff was really, really smart. They were basically like, okay, because there's language in the contract that says that they have to 
make a good faith effort to play as many games as possible. And that's what and I was so, going to ask you about. Is that in there, that idea that like if there's no good reason not to play 90 games versus 50, you can't just say 50 games because you want to save money? Is that... Look, I'm, I'm pulling it up, so that's what I'm that's what I'm looking at Let's now. get deep into um, the legalese here. <laughs> Let's, I'm like, I'm fairly certain there is. I just want to like make sure that that's... There we go. Here's my, here's my copy of it. Uh, can you open Google Docs so I can control F you because I'm not going to read through this entire contract <laughs> right. while we're doing this podcast? I believe, yes. So uh, I know that there is, I'm like all, almost 100% sure I just want to have the. Yeah. And so, so Manfred's yeah, here idea. We go. Okay. Yes. Okay, here yeah, we yeah. go. Um, uh, the Office of the Commissioner will construct and provide to the Players Association as promptly as possible a proposed. 2020 championship season and postseason schedule or multiple schedule options using here's the important part best efforts to play as many games as possible now this part might actually allow them to get out of it while taking into account player safety and health rescheduling needs competitive considerations stadium availability and the economic feasibility of various alternatives but there is a, a there is yeah. a clause that says yes they have to provide you a schedule that uses quote best efforts to play as many games as possible so the players association was like great show us your schedule that's will and and um uh very unsubtly was like and if we don't think you use the best efforts to play as many games as possible we'll we will grieve this to an arbitrator um and i think that was a really good bluff i think that was like a really really it was a really really smart bluff because they were they were essentially saying like um you they they're they uh, they kind of checkmated the league in a way by being like, you said you were going to do this. You said you were going to impose a schedule, and if you actually want to do that, like, we'll back off. We'll we'll let you pay us only fifty what, games you know. worth. Yeah. Well, my and tell me if this is right. My impression was that nothing has pissed the owners off more than that. Saying, okay, yeah, look, yeah. if you're just going to dick us around, pardon my French, like. You are, if you decide on a 50 game schedule, that's great. You tell us, we'll come play, and then we're going to file the grievance. And I think then you saw Manfred come back and go, actually, I'm not sure if we're going to have a season, which I thought was nonsense. Everybody's kind of covering it like it's not nonsense, but it seems sort of like he said before there's 100% going to be a season, maybe realized retroactively that he kicked some leverage out by saying that, and now is trying to reverse it. Am I, am I wrong about that? Or. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that's sort of part of why that was a smart move for the PA because Manfred had already sort of put himself on the hook and said there's going to be a season, and so right, they were like, right. "Hey, let's see your season." I, I think that I think I don't. So okay, I don't actually know. I'm not not super well sourced at ownership level, um, and so I don't know this for a fact. I think that there was probably some dissension on the ownership side. In which they were like, "Yo, Rob, why did you, <laughs> why did you get us on the hook for this? Right, like, right. You, you gotta get us out of this potentially. Like, um, that's what I, that's what I would assume happened is that owners, because again, Rob Manfred doesn't tell the owners what to do; they tell him what to do. And there's 30 of them, and getting 30 people to feel exactly the same way is tricky. That's why we sort of seen leaks since then about like six owners or eight owners don't want to seize it. I bet that what happened is, um. Manfred said there's 100% going to be a season and the players were like cool then we are going to sue you um, and <laughs> yeah. then the owners were like you need to walk back that one right right like the Pittsburgh Pirates owner is like I don't need a season <laughs> yeah they're like we don't want to be on the hook for this lawsuit we didn't realize that that was like I, I think I mean there's a really interesting 
and we probably won't ever sort of fully get the, we'll never fully know what happened behind the scenes, but there is a really interesting sort of thought experiment around this idea of like the PA doesn't, isn't there's like 1200 players and then there's like 30 owners. And so you're kind of always dealing with um, the people who have all the power in the negotiating room do then have to relay that to their constituents and their constituents have to sort of make known what they want. And so for instance, I also don't sort of know, I don't know how credible this is or how much this is just sort of a storyline or a rumor, but the idea that like um, Tony Clark knows that the play, that they were going to have to renegotiate this contract if there were no fans, but he had already told the players they were guaranteed to get their prorated salaries. So now he's got a hold to that. Like there right, is, right. there's always an element of like, um, it's not just what's happening in the negotiating room. It's also what's happening as you're sort of relaying uh this you're relaying stuff back and forth to your constituents and so right. if 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 the owners told manfred and and Halem and the lawyers the owners were like i'm not paying a penny more than whatever it is and you got to figure out a way to get this done yeah then they then they they kind of do have to be like oh shoot if we if we play this season and they sue us and we lose the grievance it'll cost us much and then i'll get i'll lose my job because i didn't make good on the promise to sort of keep costs this low. So, so I think that's sort of an important part of it to remember is that like, um, in labor negotiations, I think if something seems completely unreasonable and out of left field, it's probably because somebody realized that they were, <laughs> they had given too much be, ground. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That they were not going to be able to make good on yeah, yeah. <laughs> that. It's not just that they are dealing with the other side, that they're also dealing with the people that they represent. And they were like, Oh shoot, I might have given too much. <laughs> And, you know, another thing, too, that we haven't talked about yet, but I, I think it's important, but you'll know better than I do, is just regardless of what it says in the contracts, there's also this perception thing. Uh, and it's about how the fans are perceiving it. And I think that plays a big part. To me, when the owners went with this idea of a progressive tax uh, that was going to take more money away from, like, Mike Trout, you know, the really richest players are going to lose more. It was, I'm sure, like a, a cost-saving mechanism on their part. But I also think there was this psychological element of, we are going to isolate the richest players and make them say no. Uh, and mm-hmm. so that the fans can do this thing that they did a lot in 1994. And I'm sure they're doing a lot now of going, Oh, these rich baseball players, they get paid millions to make a game and the richest ones aren't giving anything up. Uh, which for me, it sounds like bullshit, but overall I kind of feel like the players are winning the PR battle. And I don't know if that's because I'm biased yeah. toward them in the first place. Same. That's I right. I'm a little bit like, am I in a, am I in a Twitter silo where it seems that way? I actually think, that the that possibly the players are winning the PR battle, and the sign of that is how quickly the league backed off that structure. Because that's actually honestly not a terrible structure. And like, yeah, if they didn't, if the league didn't even think that that sort of um, sliding scale structure, which the people who made the most sacrificed the most, if they didn't think that was a winning strategy, like enough to even sort of propose it a second time in a slightly different way, then I bet they. I bet they do feel like they're losing the public because that was a good, like of all the, the, I'm not on the owner's side or whatever, but like of all the stuff they sort of levied or attempted to levy, like that was, that seems like the most sympathetic and they abandoned that one really quickly. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, but it's also ironic in the sense that like, it's a progressive tax basically. And I bet all of these owners in real life would, <laughs> would find that to be the worst possible thing. I know. Like if the government were to do that to them. <laughs> um, well, yeah. And so, so you, so you are getting the sense that, I know it's I know it's kind of tough to put your finger to the wind, but it's not it's not quite like '94, is it? Like the players are doing a little bit better here. 
I think they are. I think they are. The problem is whether or not, and this I don't know because I'm, I'm, I just don't sort of have like a historical perspective to see how this will play out. Um, I think they're doing pretty well in terms of like, I think they're going to get prorated salaries or something close to it. I think they found a hard line that they can hold, that they have legal standing for, that they can get players to buy into, that they can get players to promote to the public. And so in that sense, I think they're doing a really good job. The issue is whether or not um, they are pissing off the ownership and the league sort of lawyers to such a degree that this is going to be it's even like worse. Pull the plug out of spite. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I, right. Exactly. I sort of think, and that's, I mean, and that's a really unfortunate, that is, I say that not, um, not to make the players culpable. I say that to emphasize how culpable sort of the owners are, which is that like um, you, this is, this is true of almost, this is, this is like a sort of a blanket labor statement, which is that like uh, the owners always have the ultimate leverage. And so you are, you can make the, you can make the best, strongest, most solidarity and legally sound argument you want. And if your manager is going to hold it against you that your argument was better than his, that's a problem for the industry. And so that's sort of where I feel like baseball is right now is like, yeah, I think the players are winning this fight and that seems good and great and deserved and about time. Um, But my fear is that the owners will hold this win against them in 2021. And that's super troubling. It's super troubling from a baseball standpoint and it's super troubling from a labor standpoint you shouldn't get to both make your arguments hire the best lawyers and then also you know penalize the industry and the fans and the labor if the labor beats you that's right yeah and you and i being in media we've we've been through that a million times um hannah you've been very generous with your time let me ask you one more question about a story you wrote uh, a week ago uh, where you talked about the employees of these teams. So we're not talking about the owners, we're not talking about the players, but we're talking about the people who potentially could suffer the most. And you already have owners talking about layoffs within like you know clubhouse staff and things like that. What did you find uh, talking to the people who are kind of caught in the middle of this and, and whose job security might actually be like very, very fragile right now? Yeah, this was really interesting. So, so this is, you know, there've been, there are endless numbers of stories that could be done about people who work in the baseball industry because... Uh, there's, you know, there's concession staff, there's like the stadium staff, there's the, the, and those people are unionized, but they're outsourced, whatever. So there's a lot of, so this was, this is, I'm saying all that as prelude to saying this is specifically people who work for major league baseball, the commissioner's office, jobs like I had, um, or for teams. So front office employees, marketing employees, um, analytics employees. Uh, and they are <laughs> very frustrated and very scared. I wanted to get a sense of, are they worried for the future of their industry? Like if they'll baseball wither and die and then they'll have no marketable skills. Right. And certainly that uh, a little bit to an extent, um, but even more, they're just like uh, frustrated to not have a seat at the table and to feel like ownership and the league and Manfred are, are representing themselves as representing these people when they don't feel like they are. They're sort of like, yeah. that's, that's, they don't represent us. They're like, being they used don't... as pawns in some way. Right. I mean, there's that. Exactly. Um, and, but I actually, to sort of go back on something I just said, like 
they um, I thought was really sad was that everyone I talked to works in like a desk job, like a white collar job. They were all like office employees. Um, but they all sort of said like, don't worry about me. I have a college degree. I have transferable skills. A lot of people were sort of like um, data scientists or engineers or technology people, people who were like, yeah, I'll be fine. I have like a, right. like an engineering degree. Um, but they all independently were very concerned that um, this industry, particularly as it's shrinking, multiple people mentioned the minor league contraction, that it won't be able to sustain the number of people who need baseball specific jobs. But by which I mean like baseball players, like coaches, yeah. like yeah, yeah, yeah. lifers. Um, and that's actually something that, is probably much bigger than these negotiations and is worth a more thorough investigation. My husband, who's also a baseball writer, uh, was looking into that in spring training, actually, and this idea of like um, the minor league contractions and what that means for people who like were relying on that industry to provide them coaching jobs or scouting jobs yeah. or <laughs> like some, like, you know, uh, that, that there are a lot of people who for one thing, don't have a college degree and for another thing, only have baseball experience and we're sort of, they're not millionaires, they're not billionaires. Um, a coworker of mine, so not actually me, but like while I was working on this story, heard from a coach who was sort of like very worried about their literal financial situation. They yeah, are a yeah, baseball yeah. coach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that's, I think, the big takeaway for me is that um, it's not that, that if, that uh, the industry shrinking itself is going to be very bad for a lot of people, even if you don't see that in the product that still ends up on TV. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, let me real quick. Um, you're a food expert. You're a food editor at Vice, and you know a lot about yeah. it. I'm an idiot, um, but I like food. And when I go to a baseball game, I, I like having hot dogs with mustard. So tell me, am I completely wrong? Do I have to change? <laughs> No. Okay. So I don't like hot dogs. Yeah. I don't like hot dogs. This is like a weird thing about me, but like once a year I'll get a hot dog. I got one at the all-star game this year and I always put ketchup <laughs> and mustard on it. I put like everything on it, like everything on the hot dog. Yeah. All right. Well, you're letting me off easy there, uh, but I appreciate that. Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you. Segment break. Okay. Thank you very much, Hannah Kaiser. That was really cool. Thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you for staying true friends in these challenging and difficult times. And let us remember that if we keep our eyes on the prize, there is nothing we can't accomplish. That's right. It's a motivational speech podcast now, <laughs> right at the very end. Uh, you know the spiel. Listen on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, all the usual places. If you liked it, subscribe, uh, leave a review, tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody you want. Absolutely no restrictions. Tell them all. And that's all I got. Uh, you know, stay safe out there. Stay prudent. Stay hungry. Most of all, stay yourself. Goodbye. Goodbye.